As we begin our time, would you bow with me once again before the Lord? Father, we are dependent upon you so often in all things, and especially when we approach your word, whether it's our own personal study or whether it's a time of corporate study like this morning. We are dependent upon you to open our eyes, to convict us where it's necessary, to challenge our lives, to impress upon us the implications of what your word means, and to allow us to see you for who you are, Christ for who he is, our salvation for what it is before you and before the world, that we might live to your glory. So I trust that you will accomplish those things for us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be back this morning. I'm uh, so thankful for uh, the well wishes of all of you who have come up to me and said it's glad to see you back. I want to thank all of those who filled in for me in my absence. It's great to know, it's a great comfort to me personally to know that when I am away that God has given to us here in our church at least men who can handle the word accurately and tell us what God is saying. We all have different talents, different skills, different gifts and here in our church we have been given the opportunity to uh, allow others the chance, at least from time to time, to bring the Word of God to us, and I'm so grateful for that and for those men's willingness to do that. If you want to see a man tremble, then watch him tremble when he's asked to teach the Word of God before the people. It's a frightening thing. It is a massively frightening thing, not because there's 125, 130, 150 people watching you or whatever it is, that, that's frightening enough, and a lot of people are scared to do that, but it's frightening because you stand before God. And you stand before God to tell them, thus says God. You don't get the opportunity to tell them what your opinions are and what you think and, and your little pontifications about life and whatever else it is. You tell them what God said because God's going to ask one day, did you tell them what I said? He already knows what you said, and if you don't tell them what he said, then you're a false prophet. False prophets were stoned to death for what they said. So it's a frightening thing. So I'm thankful for men who are willing, some not so willing, and yet you twist their arm and they do it anyway. And it's a good thing. It's good to not be willingly willing. So with that said, I want to ask you this morning to take your Bibles with me and return to our study of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, it's been a few weeks since we have been there. But I am sure that you remember that we are right in the middle of the argumentation by the Apostle Paul, which is really the argumentation by God the Spirit, right? All those who wrote Scripture have been carried along by the Spirit, Second Peter chapter 1 tells us. They've been carried along by the Spirit. So this is the Spirit's words. This is God's words. That's why we call it the Word of God, because that's what it is. And so this is God's word through the Apostle Paul concerning the contrast between the righteousness of doing, which is a righteousness that cannot ever save, and the righteousness of believing, or the righteousness of faith, which is the only righteousness that can save, and it saves eternally. Now, the Jews of Paul's day believed in a salvation by means of the righteousness of doing. It's like many today. 
Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters were those who, like so many today, in like manner, are seeking to establish some kind of righteousness by doing. A righteousness according to their efforts. They are seeking a righteousness of their own. And right here in our congregation this morning, there are those, you may not even think you are one of them, but you may be one who is seeking to establish your own righteousness, a righteousness of your own. And just like the Jews of Paul's day, you too may have a great zeal for religious things, for a morality or a moral activity. You may be zealous for all those kinds of things. You're busy, just like they were, doing things and living according to your own self-defined morality. A morality that you believe is accepted as the way to reach God. Because it is a righteousness of your own, you refuse to subject yourself to the righteousness of God. You refuse to subject yourself to Jesus Christ. That has been the emphasis from the beginning of chapter 10. Just to remind us a little bit, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. The them is the Jews, his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. This is their idea, this righteousness of doing. My, my prayer for them is for salvation. I want them to know Christ. I want them to be saved. I want them to have a genuineness in relationship to them and God, because I bear them witness, verse 2, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They didn't have it in accordance with what was true. They knew a lot about God. They knew a lot of things of God. They knew the law of God. They had been given the law of God. They had the oracles of God passed down to them throughout the ages. They had a lot of knowledge about God, and therefore they had a zeal for God, but not according with real, true knowledge. Why? Because even though they had all that, they were not knowing about God's righteousness. Verse 3. And therefore, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is, verse 4, the end of the law of righteousness. That just simply means the law of the righteousness of doing. You go all the way down the end of this idea in your mind that you can attain righteousness by your own doings. And at the end of that entire road, Jesus Christ stands and says, you didn't make it on those things. I'm the only one that you can. In me is the only one. He is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, you stop trying it when you believe in Jesus Christ. Because you know it's a failure. So this is the damning reality in which so many people are trapped. Maybe you're even trapped in that this morning. A righteousness of effort. A righteousness of human works, a, a, a righteousness of doing, cranking it up, starting all this moral activity, cleaning up your life, a righteousness of reformation without any reconciliation. 
You've cleaned up your life. You've changed a few things. You look better than your friends and neighbors around you, but there's no real relationship with God according to knowledge. And the only righteousness that will save is a righteousness by faith. That's exactly what Paul says in the verses that follow verse 4. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness that was based on the law shall live by that righteousness. He's not saying that you're going to gain salvation by that. What he is saying is that that's what you have to live by and you've got to be perfect according to that because any violation of the law at all is a violation of the whole law. So you have to be perfect if you're going to strive that way and no one is perfect. But the righteousness based on faith says it this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. In other words, I'm going to go get God and I'm going to attach him to my life and therefore I will be okay. I'm going to even go to heaven to get God. I'll be fine. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ. If I'm the one who's going to attach I'm going to attach Christ to my life. Christ died, but I'm, but I'm going to attach him to my life. It's me plus Jesus and everything will be good. No. But what does it say? Verse 8, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. What word is that? It's the word of faith, which we are preaching. And so righteousness by faith does not say it can do what is necessary to acquire salvation. Faith doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm going to do everything in order to get to God. That's not what faith says. No, righteousness of faith confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in the heart that God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. That's what verses 9 and 10 say. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is the righteousness of faith. That is proof of salvation. And so what we hear in verse 10 is simply an expansion of verse 9. Because with the heart man believes unto righteousness or showing righteousness and with the mouth he confesses proving or showing salvation. So faith of the heart, true faith is the vehicle that ushers into, ushers us into Christ's saving righteousness. It's the vehicle. That's all it is. Christ is the one who saves. Faith is the vehicle. We might even say it this way. Faith is the first link in a chain of experiential realities within true salvation. Faith is the first link in a chain of experiential realities within salvation. You have justification. You have all of these grand truths that we talked about even a few chapters before that. All part of salvation. Faith is the first link in that. Faith is the groundwork, if you will, upon which God builds. It's a gift from God. It's not yours. It wasn't inherent in you. It is a gift from God, Ephesians 2 tells us. And yet it's the groundwork on which God builds. So that when we as sinners are justified by God, God then opens the floodgates of blessing. That are born in his grace. That is simply to say. As we begin our time here this morning. That true saving faith. Cannot be hidden. 
True saving faith cannot be hidden if it's real. In other words, true saving faith cannot be kept secret in the life of the true believer. In other words, it will show itself. That's why we hear in verse 10 that confession follows faith. Remember I said 10 is an expansion of verse 9. Verse 9 is just listing it backwards. In other words, verse 9 is saying you're confessing Jesus as the Lord. Why? Because you believed in your heart what God has said concerning his son. And especially believing that he raised him from the dead. Verse 10 just reiterates it the other way around. For with the heart you believe, showing righteousness, and with your mouth you confess. Proving, showing your salvation. So, saving faith is not a secret thing. In order to be saved, you must come by faith. And if your faith is genuine, then it always manifests manifests itself in the confession of all that God has said in the gospel. All the truths of the gospel are confessed by the true believer. They don't say, well, I believe God on this, but on this, I, I, I just don't believe Him. That's an impossibility of true saving faith. If you look at the Word of God and you take the Word of God for what God has said and you, you understand it according to the authorial intent of the author as it's written and you say, well, I just don't buy that, then I have to wonder whether you actually believe God. Because true saving faith will do what confession actually means. We talked about it a few weeks ago, right? It will willingly and externally agree. Remember, confession is agreement with God. It will verbally and externally agree with all that God has said in the gospel. Now you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, we can't see the heart. Right? Somebody says they believe. I can't see the heart. It's true. We can't see the heart, but God does. God sees the heart. What we hear is the confession. God sees the heart. For with the heart man believes. That's what God sees. But what we hear is the confession. What we hear is what someone says they believe about what God has said. And a confession is more than just words. A confession is the expression of a changed and a changing life. That's what confession is. It's the external expression of what I believe. If I say I believe this, then I live by it. That's the external expression. So this is an amazing thing. Knowing that there is no work that must be done in order to receive the blessing of salvation is absolutely beyond comparison, isn't it? I mean, knowing that I can't do anything and there's anything that I ever do is not acceptable anyway is beyond all comparison. And all along in our study of Romans, Paul has been arguing this point to the Jews. And he's been arguing this point because the Jews have a problem in their mind. The Jews' problem is one of singularity. They believe they were the only ones. They believe that only God could save them. 
that they were the only ones who could be God's people. And Paul has been arguing against this over and over and over again. And we've seen him make it by continually quoting from the Old Testament. Over and over again throughout our study, in order to prove his point, he makes a point, and in order to show that by way of example, Paul has turned to the Old Testament scriptures in order to show that salvation is by faith alone. Now think about that. Paul has turned to the Old Testament to show that salvation is by faith alone. Now as Christians, that's not how we think oftentimes. We think, man, if I'm going to show somebody the gospel, I've got to go to the New Testament. I've got to go to a book like the Gospel of John or to 1 John or somewhere else in the New Testament because then they'll see Jesus. Paul says to his Jewish brothers and sisters, I'm going to show you that salvation is by faith alone from the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. After he rose from the dead, the guys are walking back. The two guys are pondering all that took place, and they thought, man, Jesus, we thought he was the guy, and here Jesus is walking with them. They don't recognize him, and he takes them down through the scriptures to show them exactly who he is. The Old Testament. That's what they knew. That's what they had. And so this is very, very important. Why? Because Paul's primary, he's primarily writing here in chapters 9, 10, 11, with addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters. And they're steeped in the Old Testament. In fact, if you're going to teach a Jew today the gospel, if you're going to go to some Jew who's actually an Orthodox Jew who really understands uh, his faith and those kind of things, not nominal, you know what? If you're going to share the gospel with him, you go to the New Testament, guess what? He's not going to listen. They're not going to listen to you. You know why? Because they don't believe the New Testament is the Word of God. It's not acceptable to them as the Word of God. The only thing that's the Word of God to them is the Old Testament. And so in order to communicate the gospel to them, you're going to need to go to the Old Testament. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's using the scriptures that they know. He's using the Old Testament as his apologetic, as his proof. As his argumentation concerning his point about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Just so we know, that is the emphasis of the Old Testament. The emphasis of the Old Testament, like the emphasis of the New Testament, is the same. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's always been that way. God saving those who believe what he has said. It's always been that way. And that is what caused the Jews, in fact, that's what caused so many people even today, who, who even aren't Jews, to get offended. They get offended by the simplicity of the gospel. They get offended by the simplicity of the gospel. You mean I just have to believe what God said? You mean that's what I must do? Yes. Well, that's just too easy. That's just too easy. There, there has to be more. There has to be something else that, that, that you just don't know about. It's, it's just too easy. No, that's it. That's the gospel. If you 
Believe in your heart, it will result in righteousness. If you believe Jesus is Lord, you confess Him as Lord, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what it says. Salvation, therefore, is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is in Christ alone. It is to the glory of God alone. It is according to the Word of God alone. And it's that way whether you use the Old Testament or whether you use the New Testament. So, here in verses 11 to 13, the argument continues. All with the support of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, what does it say? Let me read it for us. For, verse 11, the Scripture says... I love that. Uh, Take that as something to put in your repertoire of phraseology when you're talking to somebody. Whether they believe it or not. The Bible says. The scriptures say. Yeah, 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 but that's man's interpretation. No. The scriptures say. Okay? That's the authority. That's your authority. You have no inherent authority whatsoever to speak to anybody... Thus saith the Lord. That's the authority. The scripture says. I love what Paul says then. To his Jewish brothers. All right, listen up. The scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Why? Because there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For... Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice that verse 11 begins with Paul quoting from the Old Testament. It is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. I want us to turn back to Isaiah for a moment. The prophet Isaiah, very important prophet in the history of Israel. Every Jew would have clearly understood Isaiah's prophecy. In fact, it was Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus opened up in the synagogue one day and said, this is fulfilled in your presence today. And he was talking about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 28, Isaiah is prophesying once again to Israel in their disobedience to God. And he gives all kinds of imagery about their disobedience. Beginning in verse 1, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Woe to you, leaders of Israel. Woe to you, rulers, those of you who are leading the people of Israel. Woe to you. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. Woe to you, destruction is coming. The Lord is against you. That's the idea. Don't get mixed up in the imagery that he's using, the storm of hail, the strong tempest, all these kind of things. He's just giving them imagery as to the reality of the power of God upon them. And he says, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig 
prior to summer, which one sees as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. He's basically saying, listen, you seem like you're there now. You're all that now. You think you know God. You're here today, gone tomorrow. Like a ripe fig. You see a ripe fig. Oh, that looks good. You swallow it down. It's gone. You have it no more. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. A glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment and strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. In other words, the Lord, when he comes, he's going to be beautiful to those who receive him. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. Why? The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They, the people are like priests. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. What imagery? Not to be in a place where you can't even sit down because there's puke everywhere. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. That's the idea of Israel. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breath? Uh, Who's he going to give it to? The children? Those who basically are alive? Just barely? Or he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people. Through stammering lips and a foreign tongue, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And he, here is repose, but they wouldn't listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little there, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken and snared and taken captive. God says, listen, I'm going to bring my word, but you're you're not going to understand it at all. You're not going to get it. I'm going to give you the same thing. You're not going to get it. You're not going to want it. So hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. You who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you've said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. He's not saying that's what they said. What he's saying is that's what your life is saying. Because of how you're living, your life is is as if you made a pact with death. You think you're going the right way, but the fact of the matter is you've made a pact with death. And you're saying, oh, we'll be okay, we'll be okay. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed. He who believes in it will not be disappointed. He won't be frightened. So clearly... We can see that God was, through the prophet Isaiah, graciously giving the Jews the gospel. He's saying to them, listen, you're after a works of doing. You're you're going about leading people in the wrong way, saying that we'll be okay, we'll be okay, we'll be okay. We're God's people, we're God's people. And God is saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're going about it all the wrong way. 
But I'm going to have a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, a foundation. And when you believe in it, you won't be disappointed. If they would just trust in him alone, they would be saved. The problem with the Jews was that they thought salvation was only for them. And yet it was open to all people. You say, well, how do we know that? We'll go back to Romans chapter 10. Go back to Romans chapter 10. Because Paul has been driving the same point home to his readers over and over again. Paul has been saying this more than once as we've studied in Romans. In fact, back in chapter 9, he has quoted from Isaiah 28. Notice what he said in verse 33, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a quote from the same exact place, Isaiah 28, verse 16. And Paul combines Isaiah 28, 16 with Isaiah 8. And you say, why? Because he's highlighting the unbelief of the Jews. He's highlighting to the Jews that they really don't believe what God has said. And he's anticipating the objection that they will make to the gospel being for all people. Paul is anticipating the fact that his Jewish brothers and sisters are going to say, wait a minute, the gospel you're preaching and saying that whoever would believe is okay is not true because Isaiah says it this way. That it's not for all people, it's just the Jews. Paul's anticipating this argument. And so Paul takes the he of Isaiah 28, he who believes in him will not be disappointed, as you see it there in verse 33. And Paul interprets it for us in verse 11 as meaning whoever. The scriptures say whoever believes in him will not be disappointed disappointed that is simply to say that Isaiah's announcement to the Jews that he who believes will not be disappointed is actually saying anyone 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 who believes will not be disappointed so the he in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 is a collective he meaning whoever In other words, to remove all doubt in the minds of the Jews as to the universality of the call of the gospel to all people. The Jews of Paul's day and us this morning get the proper interpretation of Isaiah 28 verse 16. It's whoever. It's whoever. Whoever believes. That includes you. That includes me. So right here, Paul, in Romans chapter 10, we would go here and we would say, okay, let me share the gospel with you. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. If we're talking to somebody, we could go to Isaiah 28 and share the exact same thing. Because in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, it says the exact same thing. If you will believe, you will be saved. That includes you. That includes me. I'm not a Jew. I have no Jewish heritage in me. That is the eternal mercy of God and the reality that there is the universal possibility of faith to whoever. Whoever. By the way, this should not be new to our ears. 
this idea should not be new to our ears and it should not be confused in the reality of the sovereignty of God to save those whom he has chosen. We have heard this before in our own study of the scriptures here in this church when we studied 1 Peter nearly 12 years ago. Some of you weren't even here, so you say, well, it's new to my ears. Here's what it said, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. For this is contained in Scripture. Peter using the same thing. You want to argue? Here's who you're going to argue with. You're going to argue with God. It says in God's word, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isaiah 28, 16. Paul's using it. Peter's using it. This precious value then, Peter says, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which is the first part of Paul's words in Romans chapter 9 and verse 33. The same thing. Peter's quoting it, just flipped it around. Peter used Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, and he puts it in the opposite as Paul puts it, but they're saying the same thing. And then Peter says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they who they stumble. Why? You say, why do people stumble? Why do people not want to receive the gospel? Why won't they hear it? Because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. There you have the sovereignty of God on both sides. By the, word, by the way, the word disobedient there means to disobey, to not believe. To not believe. That's the idea. Apitho is the word. Or apatheo, I should say. To willfully and perversely not believe. It's a willful unbelief. They're disobedient to the word. That's how the Bible describes it. And so Peter shows that those who believe, to those who believe, Christ is precious. To those who believe, Christ is precious. And at the judgment seat, they will not be ashamed. There will be no disappointment for them before God. Why? Because they're enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. It is a righteousness of faith. But to those who do not believe, those who are disobedient to the word, Christ is a stone of stumbling. It's almost like having a rock tied around your neck, thrown into the bottom of the ocean. For those who believe, there is a solid security because of Christ. But for those who do not believe, there is no security. There is no hope. In fact, Isaiah uses those terms to describe that idea. That idea of security, that idea of solidness, that idea of hopefulness. He says the stone is tested or it's precious. It is costly and it is solid. It is a foundation stone. That's the idea. It is tested. It is costly. It is firm. You go back to 1 Kings and you read about the building of the temple. They said the same thing about the stones of the foundation of the temple. They were costly. They were tested stones. They were firm stones. And Paul's picking up on that picture. He's picking up on that thought. And he's saying to all who believe upon Jesus Christ, there is no shame. They will be immovable. Why? Because... 
of the tested, costly, firm Savior on whom they rest their faith. So all of this comes by faith. It comes by a righteousness of believing. The only righteousness that will save. That's the response. Faith is the response that is expected when the scriptures preach the gospel. When the word of God is spoken, the response that is expected is, I believe it. There's no difference between all men. Notice verse 12. For there's no distinction. That was the big thing in the Jews' mind. There was a distinction between them and the rest of the people. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Distinctions were huge in the mind of the Jews. They hated the Samaritans who were half-Jews. Because they had inbred with the Gentiles. All the Gentiles, they disdained unless they became a proselyte. That's the same way in all other kinds of works-related religions. We'll have nothing to do with anybody if you don't do what we ask you to do. If you don't ride your bike to a thousand houses, you can't be part of us. If you don't go knock on a thousand doors, you're not good enough. If you don't come and do all the sacraments and be part of the church and say all these prayers and all this hail to all the prophets and all the false prophets and all the icons that we've raised up, you're not part of us because being part of the church is what matters. You don't worship Allah. Sorry. If you don't say all your Hare Krishnas and hallelujahs to Buddha and whatever else you want to do, you're out. Listen, people may be poles apart by way of culture and by way of religious practice, but I can tell you this, all men are the same by way of their spiritual condition. All men. That's what Paul's getting at. There's no distinction. There's no distinction. The condition, what's the condition of all men? Paul said it back in chapter 3, verse 23, for all men have fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because all men have sinned, it said. For all have sinned. That word in the original Greek, pos, for all, is an all-inclusive reality. That means everybody without exception. That's the spiritual condition. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 5 that Christ died for the righteous man. Is that what he said? No. Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. He didn't die for the guy who says, yeah, I did okay, God, I'm a pretty good guy, save me. Oh, I'm sure I'm worthy to be saved. No, Christ died for the ungodly. By spiritual condition, all people are ungodly. There is no distinction, and therefore, under the due condemnation of God, because there is no distinction spiritually. But there's hope. There's hope. There's no distinction when it comes to the gospel's proclamation and promise. Christ is Lord of all. Christ is Lord of all and he is sufficient in his grace and his mercy for all who will call upon him. He is the same Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon him. Don't don't read too fast over the word all. You may think you're not savable. You may be doubting, even sitting here this morning, I doubt whether God could save such a sinner like me. I'm so bad. You don't know what I've done in my life. You may think that God could never love you like you desire to be loved. But hear the word of this text. Hear the word of God. God says he abounds in riches 
for all who call upon him. That includes you. That includes me. He's sufficient. Now I want to highlight something here because it can be confusing for us if we're not careful. Don't get confused by the word call. By the way, the word call upon him, that's a, a participial with a continuing action. It's something uh, that we do that has the reflective actions throughout life. But let's not be confused by the word call because it simply is a synonym here for belief, faith, faith. Right? He says in the, up there in verse 9 and 10, belief, right? If you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For a man believes, in the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And then down in verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's belief. It's a synonym. It's synonymous with that. And in verse 13, Paul is quoting once again from the Old Testament, but this time from Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is all about the coming day of the Lord. Remember Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching his first message and the Spirit had been poured out upon the nations and he said this is the fulfillment of the, what the prophet Joel had said, the Spirit will come out. That wasn't the complete fulfillment of what Joel had said, but it was certainly part of what Joel was saying. And here Paul is quoting it again. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to know that there is no national distinction. That they can get this idea of them only out of their mind. God has had all along a bigger plan. God has all along had a wider view for salvation. A scope that includes some from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. That's how it's always been. That's why Paul says in quotes Joel 2. There's nothing more equal opportunity than the gospel. Whoever will call upon Jesus Christ will be saved. That's what it says. And so it's clear. It's clear. All people need salvation. Otherwise, it wouldn't be whoever. It would just be you. Whoever will believe. That means we all need to believe. Which is saying that we all need salvation. And then secondly, God is able and rightly gracious enough he is richly gracious. He is rightly gracious. He is able in all ways to save whoever will believe. And then third, what is demanded of us is that we call upon him. So verse 13 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So God can save any person as easy as he can save any person. God doesn't need some extra amount of power in order to save anybody. In other words, you're no more difficult to save than somebody else. And he has more than enough grace to save you. It's not too difficult for God to do it. Doesn't matter how deep you are in the cesspool of sin. Doesn't matter how far down at the level of sinfulness you are, what floor you live on, how close you are to the fires of hell yourself. As we learned last time, all of us are right there. As I heard one preacher say one time, we're all going to enter heaven smelling like smoke. And so here's the way of salvation. We call upon the Lord. 
It's always been the way of salvation, Old Testament and New Testament. That's what Paul is quoting from Joel 2. See, in the mind of the Jews, Paul's gospel was a contradiction of the Old Testament. Paul saying, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's a contradiction. And Paul says, no, no, that's not so fast with that. That's exactly what the Old Testament says. And so he quotes Joel 2. And it's just like Isaiah 28 in verse 11. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Joel 2, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's no contradiction. Paul's saying, listen, what I'm preaching in the gospel and what you have always heard in the Old Testament, there's no contradiction between that at all. It's always been the same. Salvation is by faith. Salvation is by believing. Salvation comes by calling on God. What does it mean to call? Because that's where the emphasis lies here. What does it mean to call? Well, let me just give us a few things. Because the first thing that we can understand is that we all... The need is universal, right? I've said this already. I've commented on this already. The need is universal. Don't even think that there's a distinction that is between you and somebody else. I'm better and that's why God saved me or I'm not so good and that's why God can't save me. Listen, there's no distinction of race. There's no distinction of nationality. There's no distinction of, of morality made here. That was the problem with the Jews. They thought salvation was only for them. And Paul is saying, no, there's no distinction. That's what we all first must realize about ourselves, right? We come with nothing to offer God. There's no distinction. I can't say I'm better than this guy or I'm, uh, I'm not as good as this guy. There's no distinction. We have nothing to offer. We are completely spiritually bankrupt before God. That's the first thing we have to realize. We have nothing by way of ourselves that we can offer that might appear better than others before God. We are all the same. Spiritually standing before God prior to Him saving us, we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. So to call upon the Lord is to first realize before God that you're in real trouble. You, you have to realize you're in trouble. We heard it a few weeks ago, as Jonathan Edwards said, we are just hanging by a thread over the burning pit of hell in the hand of a living God who is angry with us. We're in trouble. Therefore, secondly, calling means that we are in a hopeless state. We're in a hopeless state. Listen, as long as you can feel like you can swim to shore on your own, You'll never ask for the Coast Guard to come and save you. You'll never seek for help. You'll never call out for help. You'll never fire the flare gun. You'll never do anything to call for help. You will not cry out, even though you're on the brink of drowning. You, you, you're in the middle. You, you cannot get there. And the, but the moment you realize you're doomed, you cry out for help. So you have to realize you're in real trouble. You're not just in trouble, you're dead. You're not even swimming at the top of the ocean. You're down at the bottom of the ocean where the fish do their business. They're swimming over you like an old relic. Because you couldn't get up if you wanted to. You're dead because of sin. You're desperate. You're desperate. 
So in your desperation, you cry for help. That's what it means to call. It's not simply words. It's not simply words. God, help me. No, it's the full reliance upon Jesus Christ. I can do nothing. Unless, God, you save me, I'm doomed. One man said it this way. There are people who seem to come to Christ relying on certain things in themselves. They've heard that they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they add to that on everything else. It's them plus Jesus. It's their religious activities. Oh, and I need Jesus too. Okay, I'll take him on. He's another piece of baggage that I'll have on me. But that won't work. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ implies that you have nothing to bring. You're bankrupt, destitute, dead, desperate. That's exactly what Jesus was intending to say in Luke chapter 18, wasn't it? When he went to the temple and there walks in the Pharisee and the publican. Two men go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee goes right up to the front. And he stands there in his pharisaical lifestyle and he says to God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like these other people. I'm so thankful there's a distinction between me and everybody else. I'm not even like this guy. Oh God, thank you that there's a distinction between me and him. In fact, I fast. I give. I go to the temple. I read the scriptures. Aren't I such a great man? Aren't I so savable? The other guy's in there and he won't even go to the front. He doesn't even go anywhere. He stands in the back. He kneels down. He won't even go close. He won't even look up to heaven. He beat his chest and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a vast difference. The publican brought in all that he could or brought in nothing that he he didn't have anything. The publican, the Pharisee brought in all that he could and he leaves as an unjustified man. The publican brings in nothing. He begs for mercy. He understands his hopeless state. He understands his desperation before God and he cries out to God for saving mercy. Jesus says the publican wouldn't be justified. Not the Pharisee, not the religious guy. The publican went away justified. Not the Pharisee who could account for all his goodness. Look what I've done. Look at my distinction. Aren't I great? Look at my awards. Not only was he not justified, he was condemned. He was condemned. Why? Because he was self-sufficient. He had no need for Christ. I don't need him. You want to know something? There's nothing more distasteful to God than a person who thinks that something in them is sufficient to simply satisfy the holiness of God. There's nothing more distasteful to God than that. That any vestige in you is something worthy before a holy God. And when someone thinks like that, you know what? They reject Christ. They reject Christ for who He is. There's no greater sin than to reject God's Son. No greater sin than to turn your back on His sacrificial death for sin. So in order to be saved, you have to call and you have to call upon the name of the Lord. It's not simply a confession of your hopelessness, but also an acknowledgement of all that Christ is. It's an acknowledgement of what he has accomplished for sinners like us. That's why Paul says, whoever will call upon the name, quoting Joel 2, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, that, that represents all of who he is. 
That's, that's who he is. You're known by your name. Your, your name is who you are. It's, your, it, it, it's what people recognize to be who you are. You destroy your name and your life, at least in the eyes of man, is undermined. This is Jesus, the name of the Lord. He is Lord. It's an acknowledgement of his person, acknowledgement of his deity, an acknowledgement of his lordship. It's an acknowledgement of all that has been prophesied concerning him. It's all that God said concerning his son. That's who Jesus is. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. It is those who are saved. It's those who are Christians. Christians are people who call upon the name of the Lord. They don't call upon some other God, some other deity, some other entity in which they're attached, which they say will save them. That's not what a Christian is. Regardless if they've abused and, and, and raped the word Christian to all the other religions out there who lump them all together and call us Christian. Unless we have forgotten. Paul says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. So it's a calling. And it's a calling upon the name of the Lord. And it's open to whoever. Guess what that means? You're savable. You're savable. You're sitting here this morning. You're taking breath in your lungs by the gracious hand of a merciful providential God. You are savable. It's all of God. It is none of you that saves. If it were up to us to save ourselves by living good moral lives, then we would go around and measure ourselves according to other people and say, I'm more savable than you. There would be those distinctions. But when it comes to salvation, there is none of that. We are all complete derelicts. We are all complete spiritual bankrupts before God. Therefore, we all are part of the whoever would group. The Jews in Paul's day were missing that point. They didn't understand their own Bible. They had it all wrong. Theirs was righteousness by doing. But it was wrong. You know what they were really doing? Securing their position outside the kingdom of God. They were securing their position outside the kingdom of God. Why? Because the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you refuse to do that, you are securing your position outside the kingdom of God. I trust, I trust we will not let our view of ourselves blind us to the gospel let's pray let's pray together father what a wonderful reality to know that you so much so in your sovereign care have given us your gospel it's not ours it's yours it is given to us according to your very character and nature what you mean it to say not what we'd like it to say not how we'd like it to say it but according to your very nature and what you mean by what you say your word tells us that salvation is only one way it is in christ alone by faith alone according to your grace alone as you have told us in your scriptures alone so that you might receive glory alone lord i trust that we understand our condition before christ 
that those here who do not know Christ would come to know Christ this day, that they would not walk out the doors of this church after hearing the truth of the gospel, continuing to believe in their own self-sufficiency. And Lord, may we, as those who know Jesus Christ by faith, share with others, even this day, family we are together with and others, about the truth of Jesus Christ and about the damning lies that others are believing in who do not believe in Jesus Christ alone. Not in some harsh way, not in some argumentative way by way of conflict, but just out of a heart of sheer compassion and real urgency. For today is the day of salvation. Lord, I praise you for your word. Use it in the hearts of your people now. In Jesus' name, amen.